you have your note sheet, if you didn't bring a Bible, you should probably open it up uh, on the phone. If you have your phone, you can find Ecclesiastes. And that's what we're going to do is go through the book of... Here's what I want to do tonight. <clears throat> I want to give an introduction and then I want to run through the book and pick out something from each chapter so we walk away with sort of an understanding of the book itself. So I preached through Ecclesiastes two years ago, two or three years ago, and it was one of my most favorite books to preach through. You can go back if you want to go get a fuller understanding of each chapter. That would be the way to do it. What I've done is condensed 13 sermons into one Bible study. Yep. How do you feel about that, Sharon? I, yep. So we'll see if it works out. All right. Let me pray and uh, we'll get started. <clears throat> Father, thank you for... The grace of God given to us in Jesus, the indwelling spirit. Thank you for the church. Thank you for brothers and sisters in Christ that assemble together. Thank you for the volunteers that are pouring their lives and the Bible into our children and students. Thank you for the Bible studies that are going on. Father, we pray even for the addiction ministry that you've given us here. We pray that in the coming weeks when it starts, that it would be useful for the kingdom we pray that you give us a deeper understanding of the book of Ecclesiastes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I do love this little book, Ecclesiastes. It's just 12 chapters. I love it for several reasons. I love this book because my major professor in seminary, Dr. Rick Byrajan, he was a scholar in the book of Ecclesiastes. He did his Ph.D. in Ecclesiastes. And I patterned a whole lot of how I studied the Bible after him. He taught me Hebrew. In fact, I, I thought, so my master's is a heavy emphasis on the Old Testament and Hebrew. That's where I started doing all my work. And I thought I was going to do a Ph.D. in Hebrew, but I got done with master's. And I'm like, well, I'm tired of studying. I want to go preach. So I didn't do that. But I almost did because of Rick Byrjohn and his love for the book of Ecclesiastes. He loved it because he was sort of, he was sort of a melancholy guy. He made me like Ecclesiastes. I'm not melancholy, but I love Ecclesiastes. <laughs> I love it because Ecclesiastes confronts problems. And it doesn't give pat answers. And, and if you're ever hurt, if you've ever been hurt, you don't want pat answers. Ecclesiastes asks questions that the 65 other books of the Bible answer. So if you read Ecclesiastes, questions come up and the rest of the Bible answer the questions that Ecclesiastes asks. Namely, why? Why are things the way they are? This is the introduction, by the way, if you note you. Why are things the way they are? Why, why did this happen to me? Why uh, has this injustice gone on? If, if life is dull or if it's not fair or if it's depressing or if you're getting older and you're still not happy. And I want to know why. Kent Hughes says that Ecclesiastes was the only book in the Bible written on a Monday morning. <laughs> Derek Kidner is a Bible scholar. He said that Ecclesiastes is, uh, is, is wisdom at the base camp. 
And the author of Ecclesiastes starts at wisdom and he starts exploring and pushing the boundaries. The author of Ecclesiastes is the student in the classroom. If you're a teacher, he's the student in the classroom that when you answer the question, he says to you, yes, but, but why? Ecclesiastes is a bucket of cold water that's thrown on the American dream. Ecclesiastes allows for the questions, who, who am I? Why am I so unhappy? Why is there injustice? Is life really worth living? Ecclesiastes is unlike any other book in the Bible. It, it has a perspective, a unique perspective on human life. It, it unmasks this, this lie that we believe that you can achieve, that this, 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 this lie of self-sufficiency and self-autonomy and I am my own man. And Ecclesiastes comes by and open hand slaps us and says, no, you're not. Ecclesiastes helps us find real meaning in this crooked world. Ecclesiastes is needed right now because it exposes this weird quest that, that we have, especially in modern times, this weird quest quest to find satisfaction in knowledge or in work or in people or in pleasure or in stuff or in power or in wealth or in fame or in our world it's in sex. This book is like a it's like a, a, a power washer. You gotta be careful how you use a power washer, put the right nozzle on. Because or sandblaster it takes all of the layers off. Ecclesiastes does. And takes everything down, strips us down. And there we stand. Ecclesiastes makes us see that we stand in absolute need of the grace of God that is found in Jesus. That's what Ecclesiastes is for. Stripping us to see our need. So here's what I want to do. I want to just go through and give you a couple of... Um, Thoughts about the, this little book. You'll have the introduction and let's talk about the title. Uh, just the, the normal stuff that we typically do. And then maybe have some lessons on the back end. So the title of the book. The title. The title is Ecclesiastes. That's Latin. It comes from the very first phrase. The very first phrase. The words of the preacher. That word preacher is Hebrew. Uh, it's the Hebrew word koheleth. It means the, the one who calls an assembly. It's a weird connection because Ecclesiastes, um, we have the word ecclesia, which is the church or the assembled. And Ecclesiastes is kin to that. It means the, the one who brings people together to give them a message. That's why he's called the preacher. What else about this? The title, uh, how about the author, the author of Ecclesiastes? So, in Jewish tradition and Christian tradition, it has always been assumed and thought to be Solomon. In fact, that's how it's written from the, from the perspective of, of King Solomon. Now, there are later scholars that some, some will say, well, this is a Solomonic mask. I never understood that, but the author has taken a Solomonic mask and written as if he were Solomon to make a point. I think that's gymnastics. I think, it's, I think it's easier just to say that it's Solomon. It was, was Solomon. 
Now, what are the themes? There are several themes that run through Ecclesiastes. When you read it, you've got to be careful not to think it's a depressing book because it is not. A lot of people will avoid Ecclesiastes because it feels depressing. It's not. Several themes. There's a major theme in verse 2, and that theme is vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanity. All is vanity. That's the theme. Now, to get the theme, you're going to need to know the meaning of the word vanity. Vanity. That word is a Hebrew word, havil, H-I-V-I-L, if you like that sort of thing. H-A-V-I-L, havil is how you would say it. 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes, you'll find that word. So it, it, we need to know what does it mean. If it shows up 38 times in 12 chapters, what is Solomon saying to us? It has multiple meanings. It means vapor, it means uh, mist, it means smoke, it means a puff of wind. You ever go to the eye doctor? Uh, my glasses sometimes, I, I like these glasses that don't have frames on them. The problem with, is that if you, if you do them the wrong way, they crack or break or bend. So I'm all the time going to the eye doctor and they want to check your eyes. And you get up to the little thing you're looking through, and I can't ever tell the difference. He pulls the rings this way and that, and you look, all look the same. And they do a little puff in your eye. You know what I'm talking about? It makes you jump back. Yeah, that's what a vanity is. It's vanity. That's what the word means. It's just something that shows up and, and is gone. So why does he keep using that? It's, a, it's like if we finally get some cold weather here, and you step outside, it's, it's your cold Breath on a cold day. You see it, it's gone. I mean, it's real, but it's, it's nothing you can get your hands on. You can't hold it. It's real, but it's just a whisper on the wind. It's, uh, you might put the word enigma. It is an enigma. It can't be explained. That's going to run all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. And he starts right in verse 2, chapter 1, to tell us, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So what about the gospel? We're Christians reading this. How do we uh, read this? How do we interpret it in light of the gospel? How do we use Ecclesiastes as Christians to nourish our souls? If, if the Bible is here to feed us, to strengthen us, to encourage us, how does Ecclesiastes, with so much negativity and vanity, how does it feed my soul with the gospel? Well, there's no book in the Bible like, quite like the book of Ecclesiastes. And there's no writer in the Bible quite like the preacher, Kohelet. At first blush, he can feel a little bit like a skeptic. He can feel like a pessimist. A lot of you that are in this room right now are pessimists. You would call yourself realist. We call you pessimists. But, but, it's, but it's, it's misunderstood. Because you, when you read Ecclesiastes, you find out that God is, God is here. He is introduced as the creator. He is sovereign over all things good and bad. He is inscrutably wise. He is to be feared. He is to be worshipped. That's the God of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes exposes the gap between God who is holy and men and women who are sinners. Ecclesiastes blows it open wide to say, look at the gap. And what happens is, seeing that gap we realize as Christians, we can only be reconciled to God when we are covered by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
So let's get to the first two verses. Uh, what I'd like to do is just talk about them for a little bit uh, and then go running through the whole thing. So let's, let's pause on the first two verses and then we'll run quickly through the whole thing. I want to give you eight, what I have found, eight helpful truths because this is part of the introduction. What are uh, the truths that you find in these two verses? Here's the first one. Perspective is helpful. Perspective. It's, it's good to have perspective when you find out who wrote this. So if King Solomon wrote this, um, if he wrote it, King Solomon wrote three books. You know the books that he wrote, right? Proverbs and Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes. So if you, you see those three books, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, and Ecclesiastes. So you, some have thought, well, okay, he wrote, uh, he wrote the Song of Solomon when he was young and in love. We'll talk about that next week. He wrote the book of Proverbs when he was middle-aged and learned a few things and he's able to teach. Here's some, here's some good lessons of life. And he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes when he was old and looked back and he could say, here's what I did right. Here's what I did wrong. You've wasted your time chasing money. Sounds like an old man that has lived a little while. As an older man, he had done everything. He had had everything. And he still could say I'm empty on the inside. That he would find satisfaction in God alone. You know, when you read Ecclesiastes, you find out uh, that... You don't have to learn every lesson the hard way. I mean, people say that the, the lessons you learn are the best are the ones you learn the hard way. But some of them you can read about. You don't have to learn every lesson the hard way. And that's sort of what Ecclesiastes is saying. I mean, you've got the Bible. You've got the church. You have Christian friends. You have the Holy Spirit in you. You have the gospel one of the things Solomon will say in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 is that God is in heaven. You are on earth. Let your words be few. Okay, so that's perspective. Let me give you a second helpful truth. Words have power and God's word has the most power. We're building a life and a church on that. That words have power, but we believe that God's word has the most power. That's why our kids are learning in Awana. That's why the students, their ministry is based on the Bible. That's why you come to church. We're going to open the Bible. That's what we're doing. This is a Bible study. Uh, you find that in verse 1. These are the words, words of the preacher, son of David, the king of Jerusalem. The, the official introduction to the book of Ecclesiastes is the word. This is the word. The word has power. And the word of God has, has the power to melt away stuff. All the stuff that doesn't matter. All the stuff that we cling to. All the stuff that we pursue. To melt it all away so that we might be exposed. Our need exposed. That we actually need the gospel of Jesus. The life, death, resurrection of Jesus. To find our joy in the Lord. Ecclesiastes tells us to find your joy in the Lord. Let me give you a third helpful truth. Number three, uh, life is perplexing. Life is confusing. On, on so many levels, that's the theme of verse two. Life is confusing. I mean, do you see the, look at verse two. 
Look how many times, five times. Vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Now, a couple of things. First, is it said, uh, it said twice, twice for emphasis. And it's said in such a way that uh, it speaks to being confused in the highest degree. You see, vanity of vanities. You understand when you say something like that twice, it's for emphasis. Think of, uh, of uh, holy of holies. Think of, we talk about Jesus as Lord of lords, King of kings. Or next week I'll teach on the song of songs. What we're saying, this is the ultimate song. Vanity of vanities is saying, this is the ultimate vanity. Now it's said five times. And what he's saying is, life makes no sense. It's totally beyond human comprehension, some of the things that you've had to walk through in your life. And you feel that, and it's verified right here in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Love your children, bring them to church, raise them right. They've heard you love them every single day, and go completely off the rails. And Ecclesiastes says that. And, and that drives us to the mercies of God. Th those hard times are good because they drive us there. Let me give a fourth thing here, a fourth one. Life is short. Life is short. Anybody here? Raise your hand if you're over 50 years old. Yeah, there's a lot of you. Can you believe you're over 50 years old? It just happened over, it just happened. Like I, I've been here almost 14 years now. I don't know where it went. It just happens. I mean, Ms. Covey, I mean, you remember, you remember me when I was 13 years old. Can you believe I'm a 54-year-old man? It just happened. 40 years ago, it just happens. And, and the writer here is saying life is short. Vanity of vanity. Five times in, in verse 2. Vanity of vanity. It's, it's a vapor. Your life is a puff of air. It's here one second, gone the next. And the older you get, the faster it moves. Amen. I knew I would get you there. The, I mean, it's just like they, they're just leaping now. That's by design, you see. When, when, when James writes about it, James says in James 4.14... That you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. The psalmist writes in Psalm 103, 15, As for man, his days are like grass. You live in Charlotte, like grass is burning up. Grass, he flourishes like a flower in the field. For the wind passes over it and it's gone. Its place knows it no more. But by contrast, our being like vanity is to be contrasted with the Lord. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. And those who fear him and, in, and his righteous to his children's children. I mean, the point of Ecclesiastes is life is short. Turn to Christ and live your life for Christ. Do it while you're young. Maybe a fifth helpful truth. Nothing is reliable. Nothing is reliable. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity, verse 2. Vanity of vanities. All. Circle it. All. 
is havil. All is a smoke in the wind. Nothing lasts. Look, I like to wear button-in suspenders. Call them galluses, braces. Suspenders are what farmers wear, they clip on. Braces is what a man wears, you button them in. I just got these, button just broke while I was talking to y'all. Nothing lasts. <laughs> Nothing. Real dis- I'm, I'm being really distracted trying to talk to you, and I feel all this going on over here. <laughs> I mean, you, you, cars to the scrapyard, houses break down, have to call the plumber, electricity goes out, buildings rot, clothes wear out. Our legacy, you think you have a legacy? Our legacy, it's, it's gone. And the point is, don't pursue that. What is it that remains, you see? What matters is that Jesus, the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world, you can put your full weight on Christ who does remain. All your frustrations, all your worries, all your sin, all your addictions, all your junk, you take them. Ecclesiastes says, don't chase that, take it to the cross of Jesus. I'm going to give you a sixth helpful thing from Ecclesiastes. Uh, Drudgery, drudgery means something. It's there on purpose. Drudgery means something. Verse 2 and 3, vanity is built into the creation. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil in which he toils under the sun? Boredom means something. Get bored? Are you bored? So, so hatred for your job, loneliness. I mean, you go back to the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and 3, and you have Adam and Eve, and they are created in God's image, man and woman, both in created in God's image, brought together. They are not ashamed. They are put in the garden. They are there to work. Work is a pleasure They fall into sin. The fall takes them and and God curses not just Adam and Eve, but the whole of creation. It goes like this. Genesis chapter uh, chapter 3, 17. Cursed is the ground. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you and you'll eat the plants of the field Verse 19, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken and to dust you will return. It's the the futility and the pain and the struggle. What it does is it makes us long for another world. Things get rattled in your life. So your grip loosens up. And you're reminded you belong somewhere else. Drudgery makes heaven better to think of. I'll give you a, what number is this? Seven. Number seven. I don't know, that was up there. Yeah, good job, Christina. Look at that. Let me just use this. You are more fragile than you think. The text says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. I mean, the next time, the next time you're out in the, the next time you're out in the cold, when it comes finally, you're out in the cold. You breathe. Count the seconds that you can see your breath until it's gone. 
that's your life. That, that's your life in comparison to eternity. Somebody, did y'all hear that? At least it's not a train. At least it's not a train. Be thankful for the little things in your life. It's not a train. I mean, so many things point us, point us. Car wrecks, infections. Go to the doctor, you have something wrong, and you get the wrong medication. Unseen malignancy. All of these things point us to the vanity of life and the grace of God. I mean, it makes us think about the grace of God. It makes us dwell on the love of God, that He would love our souls like He does. It makes us uh, long to have the joy of God, that joy you can have in Christ, that, that our delight would be in Christ. That's the seventh thing. Let me give you the eighth, eighth thing. Uh, Ecclesiastes helps us see that life doesn't make sense, but neither does grace. You with me so far? Life doesn't make sense. That's true. But neither does grace. Sometimes we get caught up with life not making sense. It's not fair. Why did this happen to me? We forget the overwhelming power of grace. What we deserve compared to what we get. I've talked about the word havil a lot. Uh, it's interesting to me. You could do a study of that word, uh, the, the, the radicals, the, the consonants of havil are the exact same consonants you find in Genesis 4 with Abel. Cain and Abel, remember that story? And Cain, when Cain killed Abel, you go and read the story of Cain and Abel. Abel's life is a vapor. Abel never speaks. We never hear one word from him. And it's like the writer reached over there, got it, and brought it here. And that's what life is. So we don't build our lives on the world we live in. We build it on Christ. Okay, so let's take that as an expanded introduction. Now let's do a quick run through. I think there are 13 lessons about life. 13 lessons I want to give you about life. Maybe we can do it in the time we have. Let's go. Here's the first one. Number one, life without Jesus is terrible. Life without Jesus is terrible. You find it in Ecclesiastes, verses 2 and following. Let me just read a little bit of you, and it is terrible. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanities. What does a man gain from all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Generation goes and generation comes. The earth remains forever. The sun rises. The sun goes down. It hastens back to the place where it rises. The wind blows south goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind. It circuits and comes back and the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. The place where the streams flow and they flow again. All things are full of weariness. Man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing. The ear is not filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which is said, see, this is new? It's been done already in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things, and yet among those who come after. This is, in other words, life is terrible. That's what the preacher is saying. And the truth of the matter is, you look squarely at it, and without Christ, yes, it's terrible. 
The lesson that Ecclesiastes does, it asks the question that the 65 of the books of the Bible answers. So that's the first lesson. Here's the second one. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. See how fast we're going? The second one's like the first one. Without Jesus, the frustration never ends. Ecclesiastes teaches us that without Christ, the frustration never ends. Let me point out a couple of things. <clears throat> I'll just give you chapter 2, verse 11 is where I'll end. But if you read chapter 2, he goes on about all that he's done. He talks about all of the pleasure. He had money, plenty of money, got him everything he wanted, all the wine he could drink, all the gold he could assemble, all the houses he could build, all the success he could want, all the women he could look at. He had it all, every bit of it. Every delight that you can come up with that might be good to have. Chapter 2, Solomon says, I had that. Verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done. All the toil I had expended in doing it. Behold, it was vanity. It was striving after the wind. There's nothing to be gained. Under the sun. See that phrase? Under the sun. There's nothing to be gained if all you do is have your mind on what's here on planet earth. Under the sun. It's on the other side of the sun is where the pleasure is. We have a lesson. Without Christ, the frustrations never end. It never ends. You will constantly be frustrated without Christ. I'll give you a third one. Maybe the most uh, famous chapter in Ecclesiastes is Ecclesiastes chapter 3. There are some of you old enough here to know the birds. Y'all remember that song? Every season, turn, turn, turn. There's a season, turn, turn, turn. Yeah. Some of you hippies know that. You know that song. <laughs> What's the lesson in chapter th What's the lesson in chapter 3? What's the lesson? God has a good and sovereign plan. We need a, in your Christianity, you need a big God theology. You need to be cultivating a big God theology. That God is big, that providence is sometimes smiling, sometimes frowning, sometimes hard, sometimes easy, but it's all providence. All of it. And that's the, the point of, of verses 1 through 15. When you read it, uh, it starts off verse 1. I won't read all of it. For everything, there is a season, there is a time for every matter under the sun. All of it. It's, it's good for us to just drive that into our hearts. This is all under the good, sovereign hand of God. I mean, if you get to verse 11, just come down the page with me a little bit. This is why I love Ecclesiastes, because there's a veneer ripped off and, and you're opened up to this this refreshing look at God. The author says in verse 11, <clears throat> He has made everything beautiful in its time. And He's put eternity down into the heart of man so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So in other words, God has made it so that we created in his image. We have this knowledge that God does exist even if we can't figure it out. It's there. 
It's a beautiful thought to know that God has a, for, for your life, that God has a good and sovereign plan for your life, that there's nothing that has escaped his good and sovereign plan. There's nothing that has happened that won't be used by God for his glory, your good, in your life. That's, that's chapter 3. Let me give you the fourth one. Chapter 4. <clears throat> I have found this out. Uh, and I never wanted to, but I found it out. Ecclesiastes 4, verses 1 through 12. The community of God's people is incomparable. There is nothing like being part of the family of God's people. I mean, I'm sure I get that. I'll read you a couple of them. <clears throat> I'll start in verse 1, then I'll drop over to verse 9. Again, I saw all the, all the oppressions that are done under the sun, the tears of the oppressed, that they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. There was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead are more fortunate than the living who are still alive. Come down to verse 9. Verse 9 and 10, 11 and 12. Okay, so Ecclesiastes uh, 4, 9 through 12 is oftentimes used in wedding ceremonies. It's fine to use it like that. It's a good application. That's not what he's saying here. This is about community and friendship. Now, it's a great passage to say, I'm married to my best friend or whatever, however you want to do it, but it's not about marriage to begin with. This is what he says. Two are better than one because they have reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Now, let me just say, there's a picture of the community of God's people being in a church. Being in the church, you baptize into what it means to follow Christ, to have fellowship that goes beyond just seeing each other, actually taking care of each other. And the preacher says, if somebody doesn't have that, woe to that person. The community of God's people is incomparable. I'll give you a fifth lesson, number five. Number five, God is good and worthy of your worship. You ought to worship. And I want to press this even a little further. <clears throat> I'll be careful how I talk about it because it's going to, it's going to talk, it's going to sound materialistic and I don't mean for it to. It's going to sound uh, judgmental and I don't mean for it to, to sound judgmental. But I would like to say that there, is, uh, there has been a trend to the, the, the casualification, the casualification of worship. To, to move it so that it's, it's more eminent and close than transcendent. And I think that's, uh, I think that's problematic. Chapter 5. Guard your steps. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they're doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. 
God is in heaven. You are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. It's good for us. Don't get past thinking of style of clothes. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about attitude. It's good for us to get past being too casual when we think about who it is we've come to worship. And and, and who it is we have to to do business with. God is good. Yes, he is loving and kind. But he is a holy, wrathful God. And it's good for us to remember that we are saved from that wrath and, and that should drive us to want to worship Him more. So God is good. That's one lesson. Uh, and worthy of your worship. Ecclesiastes 6. Let me give you another one. <clears throat> Ecclesiastes 6, verses 1 through 9. Uh, sixth point. A disc, I'll say it like this. A discontented soul will never be satisfied. Uh, if you're not content in Christ. You're never going to be satisfied with anything. Verse 1. There's an evil I've seen under the sun. It lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing, all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It's a grievous evil. If a, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good, good things and he has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better than him. Verse 7. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. What advantage has the wise man over the fool? What does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This is vanity and a striving after the wind. And, and, and the point is, you, you can have as much as you possibly can get in this world and still be miserable. A discontented soul will never be satisfied. That's a lesson in Ecclesiastes. Let me give you another one, number seven. Number seven, your life is safe in the hands of God. One of the great things you learn in Ecclesiastes is that your life is safe in the hands of God. Chapter 7, verse 13. Consider the work of God. Who can make, who can make straight what he has made crooked? If, in other words, if God wills it, there's nothing you can do to change it. If God is in it, and he says, here are the examples. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of, of adversity, consider God has made one just as he made the other. So, in other words, when things are going well, it's good. It's fine to say, God, God is good. You get the job, God is good. When there's more money than in your bank account than you thought, God is good. All of those things are true. Let's not forget God is also good when life goes south. And and here's the reminder. He's in both of them. That that your life, whether it's painful or, or prosperous, whether it's rich or poor, that your life is in the hands of God and he's using all of that. It's what what the writer is saying. Maybe an eighth lesson. This is my favorite sermon to preach, by the way. 
uh, from Ecclesiastes was, and I, I think I used this phrase, fear God and forget fairness. Fear God, worship God, and stop looking for what's fair. Let me show you where I get that. Chapter 8, verses 10 and following. Chapter 8, verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and they were praised in the city where they had done such things. This is vanity. In other words, uh, I saw a guy that was terrible and he's having a really good funeral and people are saying nice things about him. I've been to that funeral. Because the sentence against... Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. In, in other words, he's saying it feels like justice is not being served. And we like justice to be served. In fact, we'll even say what goes around comes around. You hear that? Or you'll hear people even invoke karma. Look, karma's terrible. Goes around, comes around. Yours is coming. That makes us feel better to say, but it never does. Be careful how you talk about karma. It's not Christian Christian is, that's up to God. God will bring justice. That's up to God. That's his business. It's God's business. And I trust that God is good and holy and right and righteous, and he will do the right thing. That's not my business. That is his. Fear God. Forget looking for fairness. Oh, number nine. Ninth lesson. Ecclesiastes 9, 7, 8, 9, and 10. Uh, this life is all that you have, so make it count. It's a lesson from Ecclesiastes. This is it. This is life is all that you have. This life, when I say this life, I mean from this day to the one, to the day you breathe your last. So we don't know when that is, when it's going to happen. We don't know when you're going to die. I don't know when I'm going to die. This is all you've got. Make it count. 7, 8, 9, and 10. Let me show you where I get that. Chapter 9. Go and, and eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because that's your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. For there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in the grave in Sheol where you are going. This is a good reminder. This is what I have to make it count. Let me give you a tenth thing. Number 10, verses 1, 2, and 3. The world needs serious-minded believers. 2023, 24, where we're headed... This world needs us to be serious-minded believers. Chapter 10. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. 
Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. So, a, a couple of things. Uh, the flies and the ointment, we, we need to take sin very seriously. We don't take sin seriously enough. We just don't. We just don't take it seriously enough. We should take the sins we struggle with more seriously. Uh, a couple of things. Another one, uh, we don't take discipleship serious enough. Seriously enough. We, we need to take uh, what it means to grow as a man or woman in Christ. We, we don't take being different. The preacher's looking out the window and sees the man walking down the street and he can tell what kind of guy he is. Let me, let me see if I can wrap it up quick. Three more. Here's the 11th one. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verses 7, 8, 9, and 10. In Christ, life is good. Verse 7 says, light is sweet. It's pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, young man, in your youth. Let your heart cheer you all the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know, remember, you'll be held accountable for what you do. In, in Christ, see, life is good. It's good. Now, we have a 13. You should go back. I'm not going to run through them because I'm going to run out of time. But Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 1, 1 through 8, is the most poetic and fullest description of growing old in the Bible. It's beautiful. And I would just say the lesson is every stage of life is a gift from God. Every stage. Quit looking back and wishing you were 20 years old. I don't want to be 21 again. I don't want to be 31 again. I wouldn't mind being 41 again. <laughs> Think of the stage of life that you are in and enjoy that stage of life. God has brought you this far for that. And when you read all of the stages, they are, it's, it's poetically, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's comedy, it's a picture of growing old, and all of that is God's good design. Every stage of life is a gift from God. I'll give you one last one, and I'll turn it over to the gathering storm back there behind you. 13. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. God doesn't speak in a dream. He doesn't speak in your thoughts. He doesn't tell you specifically revelation. His revelation comes through the, the Bible. I'm sure, I'm sure where I get that. Verse 9 and following. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth, the words of the wise are like goads and fixed and nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd, God. This is the, the book we study is the, the God for your life. It is the word of God that points us to Christ and the joy of knowing Christ. When you read the book of Ecclesiastes, don't get depressed. Let it be hopeful and point you to the goodness of God 
found in Jesus. All right, let me say a word of prayer. And uh, after I pray, I'll ask, I think Brother Morrison's there. Yes, sir, Morrison Barry, our church moderator, will lead us in a very quick uh, church conference that we need to have. And then we will be dismissed after that. Let me pray and we'll keep moving. Father, thank you for the grace you give us in Jesus. Thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes. Thank you for making something so beautiful, so clear, so true that points us to Jesus. We pray that you'd find us faithful. We thank you for this church, for the family you've given us. We pray that you wake us up tomorrow morning and enough time to spend time in your word. Bring us back here Sunday to worship with joy and enthusiasm the risen Lord Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.